Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7-365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. back to Greater Than Code. This is episode 227. I am Jonan Scheffler, and I'm joined today by my guest, Jessica Kerr. How are you, Jessica? Thank you, Jonan. Well, I'm great today because I get to be here with my friend, Rain Hattrick. Oh, thanks, Jessica. And I'm here with my friend, Mondo Ascamilla. Thanks, Rain. And uh, just to bring it back around, I'm here with my friend, Jonan Scheffler. Jonan Scheffler is the uh, Director of Developer Relations at New Relic. He has a long history of breaking things in public and occasionally putting them back together again. His interest in physical computing often leads him to experiment with robotics and microelectronics, although his professional experience is more closely tied to cloud services and modern application development. In order to break things more effectively, he is particularly excited about observability as of late, and he is committed to helping developers around the world live happier lives by showing them how to keep their apps and their dreams alive through the night. Welcome to Greater Than Code, Joan, and how are you doing today, bud? I'm great. I like the part where I got to intro your podcast. That was a lot of fun, actually. It's fantastic, this, man. This bio, this guest sounds really interesting, if I would be permitted to say so myself <laughs> as the guest. So we like to start off uh, every podcast uh, with our normal question that we ask every guest, which is, what is your superpower, Jonan, and how did you acquire it? My superpower is my friends. They are my superpower. And I acquired them after a long career in software and talking to a lot of humans. I don't know actually why, but it's been easy for me to make friends in software. I kind of felt like early on I found my people. And then I just got lucky. And it's going okay so far. I'm very fortunate to have them. Well, we're fortunate to have you, but it's it's interesting that you that you say this. We I mean this like slack for operators, right? DevOpsy folks and sysadmin folks. And there's been a lot of discussion as of late on the quality and reliability of one's personal network in in things like finding new jobs, finding new opportunities, uh, kind of learning and growing in your career and stuff like that. And it's been interesting for me personally, because my experience, Jonan, is sounds a lot more like, like yours, right? I was very lucky to, to find some kind of strong communities of folks that were very welcoming to me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I found my people pretty early on. But a lot of the folks in this other community that I'm kind of tangentially related to seem to have had a 
wildly different experience. I don't know if it's like a software development versus operator kind of thing, an in-person versus not in-person kind of thing. It's something that kind of struck me as weird. I think it varies by community too. Like I found, I've gone to a lot of conferences for a lot of different languages and depending on the conference and depending on the community, I think that you're going to have a different time. I think like if I were starting over again, I would probably follow about the same path, attend small conferences with tight focuses and get to know a couple people early on who seem to be having a lot of those conversations. Watch for a social butterfly and tag along for a bit and you'll get introduced. I'm pretty sure that I met Rain at a local Ruby conference uh, here in Austin. Is that right, Rain? Sounds right. Sure. Yeah. But I think it was one of the first Lone Star Ruby conferences. Is, yeah. Is where we, that we sounds met. right. Yeah. I think um, speaking of, of butterflies, I also met Rain, I think, at one of the very first conferences I attended back in the day. And being welcomed and seeing the application of the Pac-Man rule where when standing in a circle, you always leave a space for a guest to join and someone joins and you open up again in person back in the Ruby community in that day was, I think, inspiring for me, like kind of directed how I decided I was going to be when I showed up here. So thank you, Ren. It's funny. I remember when I was new to the Ruby community and not sure what to do. You know, I was new to programming, too. And I, I started going to the the local Austin meetup, actually. And the welcome I got as someone who didn't go to college for computer science, someone who wasn't a professional programmer, someone who was just you know, thought it was cool and thought maybe that, you know, I could get paid to do it at some point in the future really made it, you know, it made a big difference in my life. Jessica, how did you get started? Good question. Before I answer it, I noticed that we're talking about Ruby conferences and Ruby programmers. And indeed, I learned Ruby in order to go to Ruby conferences so that I could talk to Ruby people because part of the superpowers that that language gives you is friends or was back in the day, but still is because the Ruby conferences are still super friendly. Yeah. When we had them. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was a professional programmer for probably five or six years before I started doing Ruby programming. I would say that for those first five or six years before I joined the Ruby community, I didn't feel at all like I had any kind of community or group of people. What do you think inspires that in a community? I think strong leadership is part of it. Matt's has certainly received his share of criticism over the year, but I think that fundamentally he was trying to build a place where people focused on people instead of the glyphs that we type into our, our little boxes. I think that matters. What else do you think there is to that? We here at Greater Than Code also agree with that sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to align, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that focus on people. And Ruby was always about programmer joy. It was always about the experience. It was always about being happy. And there wasn't this expectation that the optimal thing to do is to go in a corner and type. Yeah. I think it's very um, fortuitous timing that we're actually discussing Ruby so much on the 24th, which was the day that Ruby was named 28 years ago. On February 24th, Ruby became the name of this language. So happy birthday, Ruby. Yeah, happy uh, christening. 
it really has changed my life. I have regularly, whenever I've seen Matt's at a conference, gone up to thank him for my house and my kids' college education. Before I got into software, I did a lot of things, but none of them would have brought me either of those. I spent probably 10 years in factories and hotels and casinos. I was a poker dealer for my last gig before I got into software. And the number of opportunities that Ruby opened up for me just, I can't as long as I live be too grateful. I'll be paying it forward till I die. Yeah, but not the language, it's the community, the people, the friends. Yeah, exactly. It's the community, it's the people who welcomed me with open arms and made sure that they were contributing to my growth in a far more altruistic sense than I think is reasonable to expect. I mean, I had nothing to offer in return except, you know, good conversation and high fives and hugs. And they spent their time and their energy taking me around conferences and making sure I met people. And it was great. I remember when you first went to New Relic and you were first thinking about, hey, maybe I could do this developer relations thing. And what I remember about that, in addition to your obvious aptitude at talking to people about things, is the, the help that you got, the, you know, the advice, the mentorship that you got from your friends in the community. Uh, and I, I was kind of, you know, I remember at the time being blown away by that, by how many people were willing to just, you know, take an hour of their time to talk to you about what it was like for them as a DevRel and, and things like that. Yeah. And I'm... I'm still very fortunate to have those people who have helped me build this team here. When I did the onboarding, I put together kind of an elaborate onboarding process. I was able to hire all 10 of the DevRel engineers here at the same time. And so we spent a week doing improv training and having speakers come in as guests. And I was able to invite all of these DevRel leaders from over the years to give a perspective on what DevRel was in their eyes. But it is today and always has been clear to me that I am only here where I am by the grace of the communities that I was lucky enough to join. I wonder if developer relations is changing, if it's a different place than it was when I started out. I feel like certainly pandemic times have affected things, but all that aside, the segment of the industry is still pretty small. There are only maybe 10,000 people doing this work around the world. and. It's hard to believe because we're quite loud, right? We get on a lot of stages, you see a lot of us, but there are many of us. And I think that the maturity of the discipline, I guess, is progressing. We are developing ways to measure the effectiveness. Being able to prove the value to a company is going to change the game for us yeah. in a lot of ways. I would love to talk to you about that at length, but for the purposes of this podcast, Let's say that you're someone who wants to start a program at a company that doesn't have directly tangible, like make numbers go up in a business sense of value. But you believe that if you're given the chance to do it, that you can show them the value. How do you get that opportunity? That's a really good question. Kicking off a developer relations program is about, I, I think it's the same as building most major initiatives within a company. If you had an idea for a software project that should be undertaken or a major feature that mattered to you, it's about building allies early and often and making sure that when you show up in that meeting to have the conversation with the decision maker that nine out of 10 people in that meeting 
already know about the plan. They have already contributed their feedback. They feel ownership of that plan and they're ready to support you so that you have the answer going in. I think the mistake that I made often in my career was walking into that room and just pitching my idea all at once. And then all of the questions that come out of that and all of the investigation that is necessary in the vetting appears as though this wasn't a very well thought out plan, but getting the people on board in the first place is vitally important. I think also you have a lot of examples to look through. You have a chance to talk about other programs and the success that they've brought the companies where they started off. It's not a thing that you need to start in a big way. You can put a couple of people on the conference speaking circuit or a couple of people focusing part of their week on outreach and community growth and see where it takes you. If you start to see the numbers, it becomes a lot easier case to make. You were talking about how you're excited about being able to make this value more tangible in the future. What do you think is the shift that's happening in DevRel that's making that possible? So I think there are actually kind of a lot of factors here. One is that the DevRel had a division almost of method where some people probably by the leadership of their companies were convinced that what they should be doing is talking about the product all the time. You're there to talk about the product and evangelize the product and get people to use the product. And that is part of your role, but it shouldn't be, in my opinion, the primary role that you play. You should be there in the community participating in the same way that Rain stood in that hallway and welcomed me to Ruby. I need to stand in that hallway and welcome newcomers to all the communities of which I'm a part. And in so doing, build that group of friends and build that understanding of the community and their needs. I develop empathy for the developers using our product and in the industry generally, and that's invaluable intelligence. I sometimes think of ourselves as these like operatives. We're undercover marketing operatives out there in the developer world talking to developers and just understanding them. And it at one point took a turn towards, well, I'm just going to talk about New Relic all the time, for example. And it, it feels good to see all that content and see all those talks. However, you're only talking to your existing audience. No one is Googling like, what exciting things can I do with New Relic? Seven awesome New Relic tips. Like no one's searching for that. They're out there looking at things that are interesting. They want to click on a link on Twitter that is about some random topic, right? Running Kubernetes on Raspberry Pis and soldering things to Yoda dolls. Like that's the kind of stuff that I'm going to click on in my free time in that spirit of play. That's where I want to be engaged and that's where I want to be engaging people. So I think there was this turn, right? That's part of it. And then in reaction to that, I think that the teams who were doing DevRel well and actually seeking out ways to lift up and support the communities and gather that information for their companies. And yes, certainly talk about their products when the situation warrants it. But I mean, how do you feel about that, that person who shows up to a conference wearing a New Relic hoodie and a New Relic shirt and a New Relic backpack and says New Relic the first 10 minutes you meet them 100 times? Are you like, wow, this is a friend who is here for my best interests? Right. Or, or they, you know, every presentation that they give is a 30 minute infomercial for whatever company, you know? Yeah. So I think people are headed away from that. And I think in response to that, you saw a lot of success from the people who are doing DevRel well. In addition to that, it's becoming easier to measure these things in hopefully less creepy ways. 
we can we can track the number of event the the people who show up to anything that we do now right if i have a twitch stream i can see how many people were there twitch provides good stats for me i can pull those stats out via an api i can connect them to my podcasting for the week i can connect them to my blogging for the week and i can show that my audience is growing over time so whether or not it is valuable yet we're building the machine right now we're we're finding ways to measure those things and that will allow us to adjust the content in a direction that is popular and and that's really just what we're trying to do we're trying to give the people what they want we want to talk about the things that people want to hear about and i want to talk about the fun stuff too but i'm very surprised sometimes when i learn that like hey nobody wants to hear about my 3d printer api project with ruby they want to watch me solder a Raspberry Pi to a Yoda doll. And that's great. I'm awesome. I'm down for both of those things. I really don't care. But being able to adjust your content towards the sort of thing that is going to interest your community is really valuable, obviously, to developer relations. And we're getting better at it. We have more data than we've had before and not in a way that, to me, feels icky, that is violating people's personal privacy. Where do you think that DevRel ought to fit in a company's structure? Is it part of revenue? You know, like, is it a sales adjunct? Like, what is the correct role of DevRel? I don't think it's part of re of revenue. I think that it leads to that. But in developer relations, we talk about orbits a lot instead of funnels. We talk about bringing people into the orbit. You generate content so that you generate gravity and you move people in the orbits closer to the company so you can talk to them more and help them with their problems. And when you tie that to revenue, it changes the goal. Is the goal to be out there and help, or is the goal to get the cogs into the machine and continue turning them till they produce coins? And when you tie developer relations to revenue, you become trapped in this cycle because look, we're, we're hackers. If you give me a number you want me to hit, then I can hit the number. But am I hitting the number in the most useful way? Am I generating long-term value? for the company, almost certainly not. It's like the leader that you bring in, it's like, hey, revenues are up because I fired customer support. Yes, all of them. <laughs> yeah, in the short term, there's gonna be some great numbers. You just believed yourself an entire team. Long term, you're the new Xfinity with the lowest customer support ratings that have ever existed for a company. So I think that actually the majority live under marketing right now. And I think it makes sense. I think that developer relations people do themselves a disservice by not understanding marketing and understanding the role they play there. I actually think it belongs under its own organization. But if you try and think about what that means from a corporate hierarchy perspective, that means that there's probably a C-level who is responsible only for community growth. And C-levels by design, they have numbers, they have dollars that they are bringing in. So until we get to a point where we can prove that the dollars are coming in because of our work, there's not going to be a chief developer relations officer at any company. But, you know, give me five, 10 years. Maybe I'll be the first CDRO. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you. I didn't know that they were usually grouped under marketing, right? But it sound, that sounds right. You know, in my most recent life, I worked at, at two different companies who did a combination of like social media management and analytics platforms and stuff like that. So most of our majority of our customers at both of these places were 
in the marketing org. And they were kind of hitting the same kinds of things that you're talking about, right? That developer relations groups are hitting. They're trying, they're trying to say, try to provide numbers for the kinds of stuff that they're doing. But there's that inherent, not contradiction, right? But like discord between yeah. trying to give customers what they want, but have it also not be infomercials. Yeah. And I think that that is a tough spot for DevRel teams. I think no matter where you stand in the organization, you need to be very close friends with marketing. They have a tremendous amplifying effect for the work that I do. What I want to do is produce content. And I am uniquely suited to do that. I'm a person who can show up on the podcast and wax philosophical about things like developer relations. I enjoy that. I would like it if that was my whole day. And what you need to try and design is a world where it is your whole day. There aren't people who are better than that at that than you are. That's why you're there as a team. Your job is to get up and talk about the thing, explain technical concepts in easily digestible ways. A process called vulgarization, I guess, a, a more commonly used word in French. But uh, I think it's very interesting that we vulgarize things. I mostly just turn things into swear words. But the marketing organization puts a huge amount of wind at your back where I can come onto a podcast and spend an hour talking words. And then the podcast is edited and tweets go out and images are made and it's syndicated to all the various platforms. And if you can get that machine helping you produce your work in the background, you don't have to know all of the content creation pieces that most of us know. Most of us are part-time video, audio, any any content platform. We, we mostly do it ourselves. And taking the support of your organization where you can get it is going to be tremendously helpful in growing the team. So if you can't tell, this is a sort of personally relevant topic for me. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the sort of short-term pressures that there might be for DevRel orgs to produce numbers that the business likes and how you balance that with your long-term vision and what's the story you tell leadership that's effective there? That's a really good question. So I talk about this developer orbit as being almost pre-funnel work, that there are people that we have within the company who are real good at turning an email address into a dollar and turning a dollar into 10. There are people who have spent 20 years learning how to do that thing. And what I'm really good at is getting people to care in the first place. And that's my job here. I describe it sometimes like a awareness campaign in marketing. This is a thing that you put the money on the billboards all over San Francisco and people spend millions. Of, they'll go and get VC and then spend every dollar making every billboard look like their logo because it works. Because just making people aware whether or not they like the billboard, making people aware that you exist is a first step. And I would rather that people complain about our product and complain about our company on Twitter than just not think of us. Because then you're irrelevant. You're not even part of the conversation. And being able to shift sentiment in the community and being able to hear people, genuinely hear people, it doesn't matter to them when they're angry on Twitter that they're factually incorrect, wrong answer. It's your fault. Show, show up and just address it. Hey, that's, that sucks. I hate that. Wow. I'm sorry that happened. Let me see if I can fix it and go talk to the product team. So I talk about it in that way as this kind of pre-funnel work. And then I, I talk about how we are measuring it. And 
where we measure it as a team is this care orbit where we have like a curiosity and awareness step that work in tandem where people either have seen the words new relic or they've seen the logo and and this is awareness or they are curious and they've actually clicked on the thing they've actually followed that down the rabbit hole and sometimes they may be aware because we sponsored a conference one time they've seen us they know that we exist but they have no idea what we're doing so if they if they are curious they're getting to a step where they could by a free word association exercise connect new relic and observability for example and when they're doing research i don't think there's a whole lot of interactivity we have there as a team there when i go and research a product think about how you'd buy a developer product i hear someone say something three times tail scale i've been seeing a lot of conversation about tail scale lately so i hear someone say tail scale three times and then i think to myself wow i should probably care about that thing because it's relevant to my career and i don't want to fall behind in a couple of years, this may be the thing that everyone is using for whatever it does. I don't even know what it does. I better go figure it out. And so then I go and I do my research. And in that step, I'm reading documentation and I might happen across a blog post, but I'm certainly not watching webinars. I'm just not going to be in that step. Right. And then there's entry. I say entry instead of sign up because I just want people close to us. I want them to enter the orbit. I want them to be bought in on the dream of the community. And hopefully we've expressed our values in a way that makes it clear that this is the place for them. And we're talking about values and not features of a product. Think about how Apple has been successful. Apple is selling a dream. Apple's throwing a woman throwing a sledgehammer through the screen in front of people. And that's the dream. That's what you're actually buying is this identity, this tribe. And I think companies more often end up creating these bulleted lists of check marks. I saw one the other day that was probably 50 items long. Here are the 50 things that we do. And look at those two check marks. Our competitor doesn't have those. Gotcha. I don't care. Prove to me that you value the things that I value. Sell me on the purpose. And that's the kind of thing that we're really good about talking about. And if you can demonstrate that in a boardroom, then your program will be fine. But you've got to measure it. You've got to show that people are making progress. And you've got to show growth over time. Say, look, we may not be pointing the megaphone in the right direction right now, but it's growing. We're getting a better megaphone. Is that enough for now? And then we can direct over time our content direction towards the place that is being most successful for us as a company. And hey, maybe it's I just talk about New Relic all the time, but I'm willing to bet it won't be. And when the time comes, I'll have data to prove. In the meantime, how do you know whether what you're doing is working? What do your feedback loops look like? My feedback loops, our feedback loops as a team, right now we know what we're doing is working when our total audience size is growing and this is kind of a sketchy metric because there are different values to different audiences for example twitch versus twitter right if i get a follow on twitter then a follow on my personal account or a follow on the new relic account because those both provide a place for me to use my voice to engage people it's a much lower value engagement platform though from like a, a one follow perspective for every thousand people i tweet in front of five will click or five will care about the content and that's great and maybe maybe i'm really good at twitter i'm not in my case i don't spend as much time on it as i should but you, you know maybe i can i can refocus my content and i get more value on the platform if you look at something like twitch however where someone follows me on twitch that means that every time i go live on my stream they get a notification on every single one of their devices by default I mean, you can turn it off, but what's the point in following someone if you're going to turn off the notification? You want the notification. You're saying like, this is the content that I am here for. 
watching Jonan solder on this silly thing or teach people how to write Ruby from scratch. That's the stuff I signed up for. That's why I'm here on Twitch and I want to be a part of that. So those have a kind of a higher value. So there is something to weighted consideration across the platforms. But first of all, is your audience growing? Just generally, are you getting a bigger megaphone? And more importantly, how are you doing it moving people from, I'm aware that you exist, to curiosity, I'm investigating you. And that's a step, when, when, when they're aware they've done something like click on a Twitter profile, it's a hard, hard case to make that if they click on my Twitter profile and they see that it says New Relic, that they will have no idea what New Relic does. I have now at least made it into their, their brain somehow. And they will say, oh, I've heard that name before. But the next step of getting people over to curiosity, let's say that we successfully get 10% of our audience over there and 1% of our total audience size this quarter actually ended up creating accounts. And that's where things get real hard because companies tend to have really entrenched MarTech measuring, marketing technology measuring and Google Analytics setups and it's hard to bind that piece together to be like that sign up that came from us we did that and you need to stand up and say it loudly within a company because everyone else is everyone else is real excited to take credit for your work believe me you got to stand up and prove it stand up and say devrel did this devrel is growing the company we're doing good things for the community we're helping people understand how to use our product they're caring more about us because we care about them first. And here are the numbers to show it. Did that answer your question? I tend to ramble. Yeah, no, it did. Can we do a thing? Can we do a little improv thing, Jonah? Yes. So, okay, so I am a chief revenue officer and I hear your pitch. And what I say is, okay, so I get the DevRel increases engagement. So how much are you committing to improve conversion? How many percentage points are you guaranteeing that you'll deliver in the next quarter? In the first quarter of our existence, I'm going to go with none. I would say in the second quarter of our existence, we will have developed a baseline to compare against. And I can guarantee that we will be growing the audience by 10% month over month over our previous audience size. And as the audience grows, it is very directly correlated to numbers that you care about, like signups. If I talk to a thousand people, I get 10 signups. If I talk to 10,000 people, I get 100. And that's the baseline. I mean, that's just the math of it. And if I'm doing a great job, maybe I get 15. So if we want to actually do the math, give me a quarter to do the math. Give me a quarter to establish a baseline because I don't know where our company stands in the market right now. If I'm starting off here at this company and you're Google, well, yeah, I'm not going to have a hard time raising awareness, am I? I think most people have heard of you. If, if you're Bob's awesome startup, and you don't have any awareness out there, then we have some different things to focus on and our numbers are gonna look different. We're gonna slow around. But if you're asking me to commit to where you are right now, then I need numbers first. I need to be able to build the machine. I need to be able to measure it. And once I have those metrics in place, I can tell you what those goals should be and we can set them together. And when we exceed them, we will adjust upwards because we are aggressive by nature. We like to win at these things. We like to be good at it because for us, it means that we're doing a better job of loving our people. That's what success means by the numbers. The numbers that to you mean money, if we're doing DevRel right, to me, they mean that I am living with purpose. So yes, I can measure those things, but you gotta give me time to get a baseline or the numbers that I make up will be meaningless and we'll be optimizing for the wrong things. How'd I do? I'd buy it for a dollar. Yes, so yeah, 
so kind of tangentially related. Uh, I was wondering what you talked about Twitter and Twitch as two kind of platforms that you're using to engage with prospective folks and kind of grow and welcome the community. Uh, I was wondering if there were other places, other things that you use either personally or as part uh, as part of your dev role work to kind of do that same kind of stuff, right? Or if you have, you know, specific types of interactions for specific different types of networks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had left one of our, our primary platforms off of there, which was YouTube, because we're still kind of headed in a direction where we can make that a a lightweight process of contributing our work to YouTube. So our strategy as a team is to head for platforms that offer two-way engagement. I think that in our generation, we got a lot of criticism for being the Nintendo generation. Oh, you were raised by television. You have no attention span. I have no attention span for TV news. I have no attention span for this one-way oration that has been media consumption my entire life because I live in a world where I have choose-your-own-adventure media, where I can join a Twitch channel and I can adjust the direction of the conversation, where I can get on Twitter and have a real conversation with famous people because I am interesting and engaging and responding to them in intelligent ways, hopefully. When you tweet poop emojis at people in in your software community, um, like as your only only game, it's not as, as likely to drive engagement, but they're very engaging platforms. And so we're aiming for things like that. And YouTube being the possible exception, YouTube is still leveling up there. I'm not sure if you've hung out in the YouTube comments section lately, but it's a little bit, a little bit wild in there. It's getting better. They're working on it. And those are the kinds of platforms that I want to be a part of. So as far as new things go, I'm going to go with not Clubhouse. Clubhouse is one, got some accessibility stuff to work out, but two, in my opinion, stuck in a trap where they're headed towards that one-way conversation anyway. It may be a conversation like this podcast, which I love doing, but our audience isn't given an opportunity to respond in real time and to drive the direction. And Clubhouse is eventually going to turn into a similar platform where you have 100 people in a room. Can 100 people speak at once in the same conversation? I don't think so. And so there's the accessibility in piece. Text. In text, they could. Yeah. Yeah. That's the and beauty this, of the combination. Clubhouse needs to innovate by providing a text version of their application. <laughs> or when we get NLP to the, when we get natural language processing to the point where those kinds of things can become accessible conversations automatically, then it's different and people can contribute in their own ways, right? You can have a, a, a realistic sounding um, robot voice or read your thoughts aloud for the group. But, but beyond those, like beyond Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, we're, we're checking out TikTok. A little bit. That's kind of fun content. It's a good way for us to reuse clips and highlights from our Twitch stuff without having to go through the whole process of creating unique content. And similarly for YouTube, if I get on my high horse and I'm waxing philosophical about why you should use instance variables instead of class variables, I can kind of clip that piece out and I can make a YouTube video about why you should use instance variables instead of class variables. That kind of content does well on that platform. But you need to consider the platform. And I would say choose a few and focus there Look for the ones that actually have high engagement. Discord's another good place to hang out. Love hanging out in Discord. And then you've got to be blogging too, but blog in a place where you can kind of own the, the conversation and make it about what matters to you as a community. We're real focused on learning and teaching, and helping people become content creators and focusing on the quality of software generally. We're data people. 
we want to be talking about that. So we have our own community on therelicans.com where we talk about that. That's a, a just an instance of forum. It's just like Dev2, but we own it and we get to kind of curate the content a little bit in a direction that is valuable. You want to keep them kind of loose when you're growing a community so that you can let the community take shape as it grows into those values. But yeah, that's my recommendation for platforms. Right on. Thanks, man. It's funny, funny that you bring up TikTok. Not at all related. I have recently fallen down, like continuing to fall down the TikTok rabbit hole. And out of all the different types of content I see on TikTok, it is tech content that I have seen almost zero of. There's just like, I, I don't know if it's, there's just like a dearth of the content or if the algorithm hasn't set stuff up to me, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, the algorithm is super good about all other kinds of things that I'm super into, right? Like I'm inundated with like cute dogs and goats and <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you name it. But I don't know, maybe the algorithm is telling me something about myself that... No, I mean, or you just something have something about tech it. content. I or, would go with Jessica's answer. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, you have thoughts on TikTok? Well, TikTok is really cool, but it just takes a ton of work to make a piece of content that tight, especially around something technical. Yeah. I think that's a good point, actually, that it's not as easy as it looks ever producing a piece of content. You may watch a video for two to three minutes. I once had a five minute lightning talk that I did 65 takes on. It took me maybe 20 hours to just record the thing, not counting the hundred hours of research I put into the actual talk. So depending on the piece of content and how polished you're going to make it, TikTok's an interesting platform though. Look up Emily Kager. If you go watch Emily Kager's uh, TikToks, you'll head down the right path, I suspect, into the good tech ones. Awesome. Thanks, man. I really like the ones that are like explaining algorithms with M&Ms, that kind of video. I like those ones a lot. Here's how databases work under the hood. This is actually what an end gate is using toys or whatever is handy. Cats. I saw someone make one with their cats and the cats are running all about. It was fun. Oh, that's awesome. And that's the kind of stuff that, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the time limit is on TikTok stuff, but or TikToks, but if they seem to be about, you know, a minute to a minute and a half. So it's not like you could do any kind of in-depth deep dive on something. But yeah, something like, you know, describe what Kubernetes is with Legos or something, you know, like it, it seems like you could fit some sort of bite-sized explanations or like a series of definitions, right? Yeah. I mean, if there's someone that I, whose videos I see all the time who like do these like videos on obscure Lord of the Rings facts and she'll like describe this intricate familial family tree of beings that, you know, whose definitions have spanned like not only the Silmarillion, but like other, you know, and she fits it all in a minute and a half. Right. Um, yeah. It's just, it's fascinating and it's amazing to watch. And I'm sure like you were saying like this stuff, you know, she's been researching and she knows this stuff and she spent, you know, probably years and years and years of her life gathering this knowledge, right? And yeah. gathering the ability to distill it down into a minute and a half. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even, look, I think a lot of people have the perception, especially starting out creating content, that you have to be the expert. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to do the work. Go read about the thing, then talk about the thing. You're actually better suited to talk about it when you've just learned it, by far, because you know the pain. You have a fresh memory of the pain and the parts of that API you're describing that were difficult to understand. And once you become a Kubernetes expert, those things are lost to you. They become opaque. You can't find the parts that were terrible because the memory of the pain goes away. 
So like TikTok is a good place to explore with that kind of stuff in a short form piece of content. Um, I have a couple more recommendations for you that I'll drop for you in the show notes too about uh, people on Twitter. Analytical is great at that thing and Cassie do and Lori on tech. I'll, I'll put them all for you in the show notes. But there are, there are some people you can emulate early on. And if you're just starting out, don't be afraid to get up there on the stage. The bottom line is, in life in general, we're all just making it up as we go along. And you can make it up too. And what have you really got to lose? You're not doing it today. Tomorrow, you will still not be doing it if you don't try. Continuing with my program of using this podcast to ask Jonan to help me with my personal problems, do you have any thoughts about internal developer relations or let me ask this a different way there are companies that are big enough that there are teams that have never met other teams yeah and there are teams that produce platforms that are used by application development teams and so on what are your thoughts about building more cohesive and engaged developer communities within a company yes do it i've considered this a huge part of what developer relations needs to be doing generally is binding those departments together and finding the connections for people and advocating the use of internal software, those internal tooling teams. This is why a lot of DevRel people have a background in internal tooling, myself included. It's just fun to be helping out your friends. That's why you get into DevRel. You like helping your friends and developers are your friends and they're my favorite people. The point that I was making about internal developer relations is yeah, you should be doing it already as part of a DevRel team, but there are actually dedicated teams starting to form. Lyft, I think, was one of the first people I heard of doing this, where there's an entire team of people. Because the bottom line is DevRel is a very, very busy job. If you are probably, because you don't have this marketing machine behind you working very effectively, you're probably doing a lot of the production work of your your role anyway. And what is it? It takes a full day to edit a podcast well, in many cases. So you're losing a day every time you spend an hour on a microphone, right? But if you're doing that and then you're going to conferences, and then you're writing blog posts, and then you're having the usual buffet of meetings, and everyone wants to talk to Deborah all the time to just check in and sync and see how we can collaborate, and you need forms for that. When people come to me and they want us to speak at their, their event or they want us to collaborate on a piece of content, I have a form for that. And once a week, the entire team sits down, and we review all of those in a content review meeting, and that guarantees that person the highest quality of feedback for their project. All 10 of us, 11 of us, counting myself, are able to look at that and give them the answers they need. And we have a guaranteed timeline for them. We have a deal that we will respond to you by Friday, 2 p.m. Pacific, if you give us the thing by Thursday morning, every single week, like clockwork. And that encourages the rest of the organization to engage with you in a way that makes sense for you as a team, instead of just the little random ad hoc pieces. So yes, it should be done internally. You need to make space for it if you are doing external DevRel too. But it's already part of your job and having a dedicated team actually makes a ton of sense. I would love to see more of that. Let's say that I'm, you know, a technical lead or a senior developer and there's this thing that my team has been doing. And I really wish the rest of the company knew about it because I think it could help them. What should I do? You should find marketing people. You're looking for the internal comms team in your marketing organization. There are people whose whole job is to communicate those things to the rest of the company. They're very good at it. And they can tell you about all those avenues. And we all have like that internal blog thing, whatever. They're all pretty terrible, honestly, especially in larger companies. Nobody reads them is the problem. But they can help you get engagement on those things, help them be shared in the right channels in your chat platform. That's 
the people I would work out to. Like there are humans who are real good at helping you talk about your work and they're in marketing and it's a difficult place to engage, but look for your internal comms person and failing that, make sure that your project is on point before you take it to people. If you don't have a readme that is at 110%, that's your first step. Make sure that people understand how they can get involved and how to use the project and try it over and over and over again from scratch. Break it intentionally and see how painful it is to fix. Make it just the most user-friendly product you possibly can before you take it out there and you'll do better. This is something also that not just you know tech needs and senior engineers should be thinking about. Uh, management should be thinking about this for their entire teams and the people that they manage and lead, right? Because if you have... If you can provide visibility for the stuff that your people are working on and have worked on throughout the year, when you as a manager go to your management, when salary reviews and yearly reviews come up, right, it's much easier to make the case that your team mates or your people on your team should get the salary increases that you're trying to get them if they have had the visibility for their work, right? If you can say, oh, you know, remember this big thing and you can, you know, you can point to the blog post and you can point to the Slack conversation where 10 people congratulated Sam on her upgrade for Kafka or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you have to talk loudly. Yeah, Yeah. you got to scream about it. Look, people are only going to hear 25% of what you say anyway. And it feels like bragging, but over-communicate and often especially people in management. I mean, really, think about how many bulleted lists go across a manager's desk and and how much you want yours to matter. Better make it longer and more relevant and as detailed as possible so that some portion of it actually makes it through to their consciousness and they can communicate it on to their superiors, right? Superiors is a terrible way to say that. Their managers. (laughs) Their their management, right? Yeah, this is something that I learned uh, as I was going through management and it's something that, was never taught to me. And it's something that I feel really strongly about that if you're managing people, if you're leading people and you're not advocating for them and for their work, yeah. as le- like you're saying, as loudly as possible to the point of possibly being annoying, yeah. uh, you're, you're straight up not doing your job. Yeah, you are. And like I learned very on in my career, early on in my career, that the loudest people were the ones getting the promotions and having the career success, whether or not they were good. Or they were actually contributing things that were value. I watched someone merge 600 lines of untested code against the objections of his coworkers and get a promotion about it. Like that's about conversations. It's not about quality. Yeah. And I also think there are things that companies can be doing to make this easier. So you can have a weekly show and tell email and you can let people pitch stuff to it and you can track engagement with it. And see whether people are getting value out of it and try to make it better. And that's exactly it. You have to have a feedback mechanism so that you can adjust the direction of your content. We actually have plans when we get our feet under us a bit to do kind of a morning news show like we some of us had in high school, just like five minutes in the morning, where we take a question a day and explain it. And there are a lot of people who work at our companies who have no idea what a virtual machine is or like at what layer it operates and how it differs from a container. And and telling them the difference between LXC and VMs, like that's a thing that DevRel people do well. So we can actually explain. I can take Kubernetes and I can explain it with MMs in five minutes, and then I can invite people to come and talk to the DevRel team. Come hang out on the Slack channel. There's a QA form. We answer one of these every morning. Maybe your question will be next. By the way, here's some fun and interesting stuff that we're up to this week. 
Come check it out. You can find us all on relicans.com. We got the internal page over here. We got this over here. And then you, you just have an opportunity daily to communicate this, what feels like a waterfall of work coming out of your team. But getting those daily touch points or maybe weekly to start is a good, good place to go. I love the idea of morning announcements, especially as, you know, for specific teams, you assume a, a you know a certain size of an org to be able to do this kind of stuff, right? Like there's the place that I'm at right now. There's four of us total, right? So we're not going to yeah. be doing this kind of thing, right? But like my last gig, you know, there were thousand plus people who worked there, and I was in, you know in charge of the operations team. I actually think the morning news show is a really good way to do that. But you're right that in a smaller team, it's not as relevant. I would argue, however, that you're doing it anyway because at four people, you're able to communicate everything that you're all working on all the time. That's and exactly you got to have the scale, yeah. yeah. But it's nice to be bought in on the dream and to feel like you're living your life with purpose. And work is a huge part of our lives, whether we like it or not. We live in this system and we get to choose every day. And I choose to live a life that feels purposeful. I choose to seek meaning because I want to wake up in the morning and be excited to come to work. And I want to help lift up the rest of my team so that we're out there making more developers who get to turn this into their dream, which we can't know or predict. I just want to help those people get over the line because I know how desperate it feels on the other side of the fence. I mean, I worked 16-hour days for several years at five different jobs, and I came home and the world was telling me to lift myself up by my bootstraps. you got to be kidding me. That's your American dream? Mm. Come on. Yeah. Right? I got no you, more bootstraps. Yeah. I got no you, more. I want, I want you politician to go and spend three hours getting a jug of milk that you pay twice as much as is necessary for and have to take two buses to fund. I want you to have that experience, how desperate and time consuming and expensive it is to be poor in this country and then lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Because it's not a thing. We have a finite amount of motivation, of will in our day to spend and you've got to make room. You've got to pay yourself first in that. Get up in the morning and write some code, and then go exhaust yourself so your employer gets shortchanged. Yeah. Your fourth job of the day, they're going to get a little bit less of your time and energy because you gave it to yourself first. And that's how you're going to build a wedge to get into tech. And I want to be there to help people do that thing. That's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing is, is making more developers and supporting them as they grow. I mean, I can see dystopia from here, right? The tech is headed towards a place. We have 1% of people on Earth able to program today. And we're about to double the global access to high-speed internet. When Starlink comes on board, they're launching 70 satellites a month now. When Starlink comes on board, everyone on Earth will have access to hopefully low-cost, high-speed internet access. We will double the global audience for many of our services. That's going to be real bad for the world. If that 1% who can program and control most of the money and power on the internet becomes half a percent. Historically, that has not worked out great for humanity. So we need to start loosening that up. We need to make more developers yesterday by the thousands, by the millions. We need more people writing this code and, and helping us to turn this industry into a place that we want to be because the monoculture is not going to make it. We will extinct us. We will eliminate humanity, like whether only the soul or in reality, if we continue down this path where we have a whole bunch of people collected in a valley somewhere who are defining the rest of the planet. Facebook had no small part in recent revolutions around the world, right? 
That's tech. That's us. Whether you want to own it or not, you contributed to the culture and the software that built that monster. The other side to making more developers is not having work that chews up and spits out their desiccated husks at a profoundly troubling number rate. It's true. It's absolutely true. And I think that that's, that's equally, if not more important, that we're not feeding more to the machine. We have toxic spaces in our companies and in our communities, and we need to find them. We need to change them. We need to create better ones. That's, I think, a better option even, because you're not going to change that many people's minds. You know, I think that like, especially this late in the game for many people, people who have had success with their bad opinions, they continue to kind of spout those bad opinions and believe them. Make a new space. Make a new space and prove it. Show, show your community the numbers. If you have another meetup because the one you're going to has had 18 months of 18 white men speaking and mostly the same people, then make a new meetup and see if the community likes it better. And I bet you they will. I bet you they'll come. If you build it, they will come. But we got to do the work to make these places better before we just bring people in and, and watch them suffer. I can't do that anymore. I can't be that person in the world. For a while, I stopped speaking at code schools and boot camps because I felt like a monster because I knew what I was setting these people up for. I was looking around tech and seeing the poison and I was bringing people who I genuinely cared about to the slaughter. And I, I couldn't do it anymore. But I think that now what I can do along the way is advise them how to avoid it, what red flags to look out for, how to find the good parts in between. And that's a better approach. It, it enables me to feel good about my work. Yeah, building up that, I don't know, I, I don't want to jump us to uh, reflections yet, but the thing that I, that I keep coming back to is the desire to help your friends. Yeah. And, you know, for me personally, something that I've been, been struggling with for a long time now, and it's really kind of crystallized over the past, I don't know, year or so, is seemingly how few people have that desire. Maybe not have the desire. Like I think it's natural to have the desire to want to help your friends, right? But maybe there's so few people who see everybody as someone who is potentially your friend and wants to, you know, someone that yeah. you want to help. It's like, yeah, they'll, you know, they'd be willing to help the person, uh, you know, that they hang out with every weekend, right? But they're going to step over the homeless guy who is, uh, you know, standing in front of Target while they walk in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I don't think that they're bad people, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not actually a big believer in bad people. I think that there are good, misguided people. I don't think there are a whole lot of humans on this earth, with the exception of maybe a handful, who wake up in the morning to do evil. He wakes up and is like, man, today I'm going to make some real bad days for those around me, right? They mostly, I think, believe that they're contributing to good to the world, and many of them are very misguided in those attempts, to be clear. There are people actively contributing harm every day, but they don't see it as such. So we have, we have that piece of the conversation. And the other part where I just fail to have empathy for other people is probably in part about not having good experiences when I reached out to other people, having a form of attachment in my life, maybe when I was younger, that was traumatic for me, that taught me that like I could not trust the world to catch me when I fell that I couldn't trust other people to be there for me and to show up 
And because of that, I had to rely on my myself, right? And here I go again on my own, right? This this song, I'm, I'm, I'm off on this walk and it's just me and I need to look out for myself because nobody else will. It's the hurt people hurt people quote that we saw at a, a church sign when I was driving with my son when he was quite young and he said, hurt people hurt people. Why do they want to hurt people so bad? And so internally in our family, this became a chant, hurt people, hurt people, instead of a hurt people, hurt people conversation. But yeah, the I think the part where we are perpetually enacting our traumas on those around us, because as a society, we've decided that addressing your own traumas, getting your own crap out of the way first is somehow a taboo subject. Like, just go to therapy, people. We just have to put like mandatory therapy for people. I want to see a government program to institute mandatory therapy for someone. I'm sure the people will love that. Oh, sure, everyone gets to see a doctor now. I bet you don't want people to die of preventable diseases either. No, I don't. I want people to get over their collective trauma and stop harming other people because you were harmed. And it takes work. But you got to do the work if you're going to make the world a better place. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I personally feel like it's difficult for me when it seems as though the trauma is ongoing w- without this turning into my own therapy session, right? It makes me sad to see how different I've become over the past year. Because a year, a year ago, I would have said the same thing that you did, Jonan, where I didn't believe that most people were awful monsters hell-bent on destroying me and everyone that I love, right? I don't know so much that I believe that anymore. I but, think um, They don't think of themselves as monsters. Right. 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 They may yeah. be hell-bent on destroying you because they really think that's somehow good or wrong. But, I, right. Yeah. And, and at, the end of the, at the end of the day, you know, you're absolutely right, Jessica. How much of that matters? How much of that distinction matters, right? Mm. It does matter. Go. I think it does. It matters in what we do about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to destroy them either. I do want to segregate them off in their own little world. Yeah, I want that. For me, the ratios make it work in the other direction, right? Mm, like you want to segregate off in your own little world? Well, just that, you know, there's way more of them. Oh, yeah. okay. And yeah. so putting them off someplace would never happen. So, Yeah. I think it's worth noting here that I am a large, loud white man speaking from a place of tremendous privilege and that I maybe have experienced less of that. You don't get to exist. Like you're not welcome here in life in general, right? Yeah, not even a maybe, but that like over my lifetime, very few people have come up to me and just say like, I wish that you weren't a thing. I wish that you as a human didn't exist on this earth, that you were never born, that your parents were never born. I've not had that experience. I mean, I, I, I have when I've received somehow like particular malice from someone, usually as a result of my ridiculous joke. <laughs> but then it's joke. personal. Which, but then it's yeah. personal, and that's right. Yeah. People who don't even know me, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I speak from that position, but I think that this is another... Gosh, I'm really not trying to be the like, let's all come together and have a conversation person because some oh, people man. are too far gone from that. But I think that, that that I'm not ready to give up on humanity as a whole just yet, as much as I'm inclined to. I might be ready to give up 
on the United States, looking into options overseas. I think for me, the reason this distinction is so important is because when someone claims that there's just evil in the world and these chaotic forces, it decontextualizes people's behavior from ideology, from culture, from socialization, from the worldviews that they have that mediate these behaviors. So I think it's important to understand that people aren't just evil. People have certain worldviews and ideologies and that those manifest in these behaviors. And that we build ideologies evil. It makes the ideologies evil. Yeah. Which causes the behavior of the people to be evil. And these are the systems that we built and perpetuate. Right. Exactly. And if you, if we keep blaming the people and saying there are evil people, then we will never fix the system. Exactly. The, the, the most profound example of this I'm aware of, and if this is too heavy, we can cut it out of the show, <laughs> is when Jordan Peterson claimed that the Nazis' final solution was because they were just evil, chaotic forces. In fact, their worldview demanded it. Their right. ideology demanded it. Yeah, there was nothing chaotic yeah. about that. No, it was pretty organized. Yeah. It was thanks pretty IBM. organized. Yeah. Did you and, say IBM? I said thanks, IBM. And Bosch and every other company, right? I mean, like the world would not be able to sustain its current population without the work of Bosch creating nitrogen out of the air. And also then the Nazis used it to get gunpowder when they had no access. So like we have a lot of those kinds of systems that we've built over the years. That's absolutely a part of it, right? You talk about like the industries that are involved across these bridges. You don't get to show up to work, team. Just be like, I don't actually care about the impact that I have on humans. I care about the impact that I have on this graph. You can't be that person anymore if we're going to make it. And you can't walk around and point at those people and be like, yeah, they were fundamentally flawed from birth. Whatever that thing means to you, you can't just say like, yeah, that person's evil. They probably had bad parenting. Yeah, maybe they did. But I know a lot of people who had bad parenting or no parenting and turned out okay because they fought. They fought their way up that mountain. They overcame it. Uh, And and, and they found friends. Yes. It helps them. It's not fight your way up the mountain, pull oh, yourself God, up no. by your bootstraps. No, it's keep looking for a better place. And by place, I mean friend group. Yes. Surround yourself with people who genuinely care about you and care about the things that you care about. I wish I had learned that earlier in my life. Man, I, I hung out with some people who had different values than I did over the years. And I, I changed my Our life just by finding good friends. Yeah. Because we are we are social animals, and we really are the people we're closest to. Yeah, that's yeah absolutely. Cool. That's what makes sense with us. That is the world we live in. What was that yeah. John John Gall quote from earlier? I respect facts, but I live in impressions. Especially the default appropriate behavior is whatever the people around us do, and yeah. that is what we will fall back to without active intervention and we only have so much of that willpower yeah uh, to come that in a day well i've got a new thing for facts that i just read so this is from urugu an african-centered critique of european cultural thought and behavior and there's a diagram where reality minus meaningfulness equals facts i'd buy that i mean okay but reality very broadly because Mm-hmm. When we're 
looking at more than what's just in front of us. It comes to us as facts and stories, but stories can lead us either way. Oh, manipulated facts can too. Hmm. But um, we still have to look for facts in order to realign our vision of reality and meaning with something bigger than we can personally see. Have y'all seen the movie In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter back from the 90s? It's a super good kind of thriller horror movie, right? Kind of Lovecraftian in like the ancient ones are coming to take over and stuff like that. But it's about this guy who is, he's an author. His name is Sutter Kane. He's like the, the new Stephen King, right? Super prolific and writes these kind of horrifying, terrifying books that are just like sweeping the zeitgeist, right? And then something changes and it seems as though his books start affecting the people who are reading his books. Not, not in the like, you know, wow, Tolstoy was a genius. I've been affected by it, but like making them bleed from their eyes and go crazy affected. Uh, and so, and so the movie kind of plays around with these ideas of facts and reality as something that is mostly like shared and understood as opposed to something that is concrete and stands alone by itself. It's super freaky and really good. My daughter and I just watched it again like a couple days ago, so it's kind of fresh on the mind. But yeah, I highly recommend it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I think I like this discussion because it speaks to weaving the facts into the narrative of your your life. You need to weave the reality that you're presented with and, and the reality that people share with you, the facts, into the story yeah. that is you yeah. and develop that shared story yeah. that we're all telling together. Yeah, you need a Dirk Gently belief in the fundamental interconnectedness of things sort of thing. Uh, another right. thing in the diagram is that phenomena minus interconnecting context equals objects. So the whole point, uh, well, for me, what I take to be the point is you have the facts, but you have to understand them in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the connections. And yeah, the, the weaving is really important because we can't understand anything top down. We can't understand anything bottom up. Not fully. You have to weave back and forth. By the way, uh, Lewinton in his uh, biology as ideology lecture talked about how the mechanistic approach to understanding the world didn't work, but the holistic approach in isolation didn't work either. So, Jessica, exactly what you're talking about, that you need both. Yeah. All right. Reflections time. What do, what do we do with for reflections? I'll go first. There was a lot in the, in the conversation, but, you know, right here towards the end, the idea of we are who we spend time with, right? And we are who we keep that small circle of friends with uh, is super important. And uh, I had this realization, uh, Jessica, as you were talking about that, that my kind of deep-seated negativity that's been growing in me for the past year or so, right, comes out more and more. And it really only comes out with that small, tight circle of friends. And so I need to be very, very careful that I'm not turning into the toxic one <laughs> in, my, in my group, you know, and that might be a way to help me kind of self-regulate this stuff. Not that I don't want to share it, because I do, because they're, you know, these people are, they're, they're my family, right? Like I'd, I'd lay down in traffic for them. 
right? Is it something um, that emerges within the group or do you only no. see it in yourself? No, no, no. It's only in me. Hmm. Well, not only, but you know what I mean? Like it's much more pronounced. And sometimes I feel like I'm convincing, <laughs> like I'm convincing them that I'm right, which I don't want to do. Right. And eventually they'll reflect that back and it'll spiral. Right. Exactly. I don't want to turn them into me. <laughs> so I should be more careful and maybe listen a little more. We started and we ended this conversation by talking about people helping each other and about friends. And as I've been studying resilience engineering, what I realized that it's about is the ecology of human performance. If you want to understand how someone behaves, you have to understand their environment and their experiences and sharing adaptive capacity, people helping each other when they need help. So ecology of human performance and sharing of adaptive capacity. There's a story in science, in in social biology, that humans are inherently aggressive and competitive and domineering, and that this explains and motivates and justifies social systems of domination and oppression and, and so on. And what at least my experience tells me is that, that the reason there people are putting so much effort into asserting these things to be true is that the plain evidence of our eyes is that they're not true, that people are helping people, that that's what we're good at. Something that stood out to me from early is there was a question about how do you convince people that something is valuable when it's not going to move the metrics that they're currently looking at. And sometimes what is needed, if it works, it's going to be obvious that it works, even if it's not going to be measurable by what you're measuring now. And Jonan made the point that if you get enough people on board and everyone in the room considers this obviously the right thing to do, then it becomes obvious in a social sense. And And that makes it easier to convince someone. I think these all tie together for me. I think talking about being vulnerable and understanding what it takes and and how that is necessary to really build empathy on the other side, to just stand up and, and talk about the things that suck. Talk about who you are in a real way and have the deeper conversation. And I'm sure it's happened to you all, but there have been plenty of times in my life where I sat down with someone and five minutes later, I felt like we were just kind of opened. Like, this is just me, right? And reaching that level of vulnerability, it sometimes never comes for some people. And that ultimately to me is this kind of curve of self-actualization that humans ascend over their lifetime, hopefully. We can help people up on that. And especially people who have had the kind of privilege that I've had, this wind at my back, and I'm not even just talking about, you know, all the socioeconomic pieces. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about all three of you. That you being my friends, being here to support me, you make it possible for me to hand that support on to the people around me, and it's not actually a choice at some level. You have demonstrated as peers the kind of behavior that I want to emulate. And I have no choice but to spend the rest of my life trying to offer that hand to the next person who's going to come along and continue doing the good work that you all are doing. So I am feeling grateful today more than anything for having been here and had this conversation. So thank you all.